I hit the wrong button. I meant to hit record. <laughs> so um, we're not going to do our normal little silly stuff that we always do at the beginning of each show because my partner over here feels like that this is a little darker than normal and it deserves a proper warning, I guess. So like, she's going to tell you why. Yeah, it's it's still along our true crime thing we're probably going to make inappropriate jokes but there at least in my stories i don't know about yours there's some pretty disturbing graphics and when you're talking about violence against children i feel like people need to know that they're getting into that before it smacks them in the face i don't disagree one bit um i'm going to leave a lot of the gory details out of mine because just the fact that it's kids I left it in mine. Sorry. But today, I think we're going to do a show on killer kids. Yep, killer kids. So let's do this. Welcome to the What the f- Was That Podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne. And I'm Jill. And today, we're going to talk about some killer kids. Yeah, and unfortunately, I guess the stories that we picked, we're talking about killer kids that killed other kids. Yeah, yeah. I think one of mine, I think she may have got a few adults in with her, but, um, you know, I, I guess uh, we'll just get started. Yeah, so, I mean... We obviously we always want our listeners to enjoy our podcast. So if violence against kids is a, a trigger, trigger <laughs> a trigger for you, or just exceedingly disturbing, just go ahead and skip this one. Re-listen to last week's or something. But um, we feel like with the true crime stuff that we do, this is a, a topic that definitely has some interest for people. Right. Um. Well, it's just the, the whole, the way a child's mind could go from being a child to making this horrible decision to do something that is unfixable. And I think in in this two stories that I picked, I think it becomes apparent to the effect that what children have gone through Mm-mm. has on them too. and what they live in so i think it's good to bring awareness to just what we're doing to kids when they experience some of those traumas so right um at the end of the day be nice to you kids i mean don't be their best friend beat that ass if they need it but just their ass but just their ass um but you know like i said in one of the other shows if you you continually tell a child that they've done a great job and they do a good job and even if it's not the best of jobs that will come with time as they get older but that positive reinforcement will go so much further and just their um self-esteem and the the the, the thought of themselves you know yeah. what's what's that our, our new yogi dvp dom dallas page he says yoga y- yogi is what the person leading it's called i think oh i was unaware of that but anyways diamond dallas page he says in the videos that we're working out to now 
whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. Absolutely. So we, we pass that on to our kids, too. If you tell them that they can or you tell them that they can't, mm-hmm. you're right. Yep. So So any, mini money, mo. Who's going first? Um, I mean, my first one is not, not a minor long. How many did you have? Um, I think about like four. Okay, well, you go first. I've only got two, but mine are kind of long. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to split mine up a little bit. Okay. So, here we go. We're going to talk about uh, Jesse Harding Pomeroy, a.k.a. the Boston Boy Fiend. Pomeroy was born in Boston in 1859, the second son of Thomas Pomeroy, an alcoholic dock worker, and his wife, Ruth Pomeroy. Um, See, there's where I get messed up. Pomeroy, oh, Ruth, not Ruth Pomeroy. Yeah. Fuck. It's a bitch Carol's fault. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Motherfucker. What was her last name? Baskins. (laughs) Carol Baskins. Damn you, Carol Baskins. (laughs) You gotta say it without opening your teeth. Oh, no. Damn you, Carol Baskins. (laughs) (laughs) Carol Baskins. Okay, so let me try one more time. Pause. Pomeroy was born in Boston in 1859, the second son of Thomas Pomeroy, an alcoholic dock worker, and his wife, Ruth. Now, if you've ever worked on the docks, which I haven't, but I know people that do work on the docks, and I imagine back then it's rougher than it is now, and um, yeah, I can't blame him for drinking. So... Needed a cold beer. Yeah, or 10. An hour. Whiskey's my thing, so. Uh, Pomeroy was an intelligent, but had trouble trouble socializing with other children because of the large size he had for his age. So he was a big old boy. Big old boy. Um, He had, was it, periodic epileptic seizures, and the fact that he was born with whitish membrane over his right eye. So he was a strange-looking big old boy. Right. That would just randomly seize. Correct. He disliked sports and spent most of his free time reading violent tales of the Indian wars. When he played with other children, he was often an Indian in scouts and Indian games, and he would reenact torture methods he had read about. Oh, so he was going around scalping kids for fun. If that's what they read in the book. So, Pomeroy was subjected to horrific physical abuse by his father at a young age. The common punishment was to be taken to the outhouse, stripped naked, and struck with a belt until blood was drawn. Before his 10th birthday, Pomeroy killed his mother's songbirds by tearing their heads off and was later caught torturing the neighbor's cat with a knife. Okay, the birds I'm okay with. Yeah, yeah. I don't like birds. Well. They're evil. It really depends on what mood I'm in, if I like my cats or not. (laughs) I think you like them for the minute. They're being nice. Yeah. So, um, back to my article here. Pomeroy's 
first victim was a was a four-year-old William Payne, who was found in an isolated outhouse of Powderhorn Hill on Boxing Day, 1871. He was hanging from the ceiling by a rope, tied to his wrist, semi-undressed, and suffering from hypothermia. He had been hit repeatedly and was and was unconfirmed with an unconfirmed blunt object. In the following months, three more young boys announced that they had been lured to the same place by an older boy with brown hair who fondled himself while torturing them. So, do you think he picked the outhouse and beating them because that's what his dad did to him? More than likely. That's, I mean, some, sometimes you just don't think of these ideas. It's the stuff that you're brought up in. Yep. So He was trying to take the power back in that situation by doing it to others. Right. The news caused an outrage in Boston and prompted police to post a $500 reward for any clue leading to the arrest of the criminal. However, it was misreported that the predator, or I'm sorry, perpetrator, behind the strings of the torture was a young adult with red hair and a pointy beard. Sounds like a garden gnome at this point. Right? A young adult with red hair and a pointy beard. Yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm picturing some cartoon character. Yeah. So, on July 20th, 1872, only two days before Pomeroy tortured his last victim in Powder Horn Hill, he received the most severe beating yet from his father. Ruth had had enough and chased Thomas out of the family home with a knife. A few days later, she and her children moved to South Boston, where Pomeroy's attack became closer in frequency and more violent. Pomeroy scratched George Pratt with his nails and stabbed him with a needle and bit chunks out of his cheeks and buttocks. So these these kids that he's mentioning, I mean, did he kill these kids or he just tortured them and... I think he's just torturing them right now. Okay. He repeatedly stabbed Harry Austin with a pocket knife and attempted to cut off his penis. He slashed Joseph Kennedy's face and forehead and then held his head under salt water. No, that had to burn. And then he slashed Robert Gould's scalp and was trying to slash his throat and kill him when he was startled by people approaching and fled. After Gould described the attacker as a big boy with a milky eye, the police enlisted Joseph Kennedy to accompany them in a tour of Boston schools as a way to identify the attacker. Pomeroy evaded them, and they visited his school. He entered the police station as the officers were returning and then left immediately with no reason behind his actions. Kennedy recognized him as he left, and Pomeroy was arrested in the streets nearby. After spending the night in the cell and being threatened with a hundred-year prison term if he didn't cooperate, Pomeroy admitted his guilt 
in all the attacks and was sentenced to live in the Westboro Boys Reform School until he turned 18 years old. A hundred-year prison term isn't a realistic threat. I mean, they didn't live to be like 50 back then. Well, I mean, I don't know. This is in 1872. We're starting to modernize the world. Well, still, I mean, you going to live to be over 100? Well, no, but... I mean, you know. saying, seemed like an empty threat. Okay, so um, he went to the boys' home. He demonstrated good behavior at the institution through the efforts of his mother, who was convinced that Pomeroy was framed. He was granted an early release a year and a half into his sentence. Well, that probably wasn't doing him any papers. No. Letting him get off with it. So, six weeks later, on March the 18th of 1874, Pomeroy was tending to Ruth's shop when 10-year-old Katie Curran walked in and asked if they had if they carried any notebooks. Pomeroy told Curran to come downstairs and see if they had any left. Once in the cellar, he slashed her throat, stabbed her genitals repeatedly just to see how she would react. He then hid her body under a pile of ashes behind the water closet, washed himself, and returned to work. On the following month, he tried to lure, lure young boys ag- again, and he could not convince any of them to go down to the cellar with him. After he stabbed and mutilated the body of a four-year-old Horace Millen, was found in a marsh outside the city. Pomeroy was arrested. He confessed while being held by the police, but recanted after being assigned a lawyer. Amidst backlash, Ruth was forced to sell her shop, and was led to this, which which led to the discovery of Curran's body. So they didn't even know about her until somebody was looking to buy the place. Well, right. And she would have never sold it if he hadn't stabbed the four-year-old boy. So, did her parents not know she was gone? It didn't say. I mean, this is a straight cup, copy and paste off of uh, Wikipedia. Yeah, okay. And he was found guilty of Millen's murder and sentenced to die by hanging. The only penalty for this charge at the time. However, the execution was delayed for a year and eventually uh, commuted to life in solitary confinement after two governors refused to sign a death warrant. See, I don't know why somebody wouldn't sign a death warrant for him. Because it was a kid. There's a lot of debate on on at what age you can be held accountable for your crimes based on your brain development and knowing right from wrong and that kind of thing. Well, I mean, obviously he knew right from wrong because he hid the body. Well, there's debate on that. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm just saying that's that's why a lot of kids go through juvenile placements and aren't tried as adults, even when it's murder. For the next 41 years, Pomeroy's sole interactions were with the guards and Ruth, who visited him once a month until she died in 1917. Pomeroy was allowed 
to join the rest of the prison population in 1929. He was moved to a prison farm due to his... What is that word? Deteriorating. Deteriorating health. He died from natural causes in 1932, and he was 72 years old at the time of his death. So we paid room and board for him for his entire life. Yeah. But, hey, he got real close to 100. He did. So. um, Yeah, so that's pretty much. I mean, he killed. He uh, beat and tortured four children. And looks like he only killed two. Okay. So. That's kind of crazy that after all of those torturings that he was back out on the street that soon. Right. But like you said, he was a kid. Yeah. He got in there, were structured, and had good behavior, and that's all it took. And there's there's some people that they have to have that lockdown structure. They can't control their own choices. Right. So... So you want to move on to another one of yours, or you want me to go into one of mine? Um, you know, I, I can make this one relatively quick and easy. Okay. Uh, there's a lot to this story, and let me tell you, when I first heard about it, it just blew my mind. So my next one is about Joshua Phillips. And wait a second, is this right? Yes, yes, this is him. Sorry. Um, So, Joshua Phillips and his family um, were from Allentown, Pennsylvania, but had moved to Florida. Where is it? I think my parents used to live in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Huh, how funny is that? Well, anywho... Around On November 3rd, 1998, around 5 p.m., Maddie Clifton disappeared. The first suspect was a neighbor who was arrested twice 15 to 20 years earlier for sexual assault cases and was charged. The charges were dropped in both incidents. The neighbor failed a lie detector test and in relation to Maddie's disappearance, but provided a solid alibi. The police decided to call off the search for Maddie, but the community was over with over 400 volunteers persisted, and a reward a reward was offered initially worth fifty thousand dollars, but later doubled. That's a lot of money. Yeah, hundred thousand dollars. One of the volunteers was Phillips himself. The FBI later became involved in the case, and flyers were distributed around town, including at lo- at, at a local. Jaguars and Bengals game. The TV series America's Most Wanted also offered to broadcast the story. So they offered, but they hadn't done it yet. Right. The search had ended a week after the disappearance of Phillips. Well, I'm sorry. When, Clifton's disappearance. Yeah. Um, Phillips's mother went in to clean his room, which was atrociously filthy. Teenage boy. And he had, she had found what she thought was his waterbed seemed to be leaking. Upon further examination, she discovered Maddie's body hidden inside the base of his waterbed. 
So I, I just can't imagine the smell coming from a weak old body in our bedroom. Much less a waterbed that has a heater in it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I just... Wow. Check on your kids more. She promptly ran outside of her home and went across the street to get the police because they lived in a community where a, a that were the police were still present there at this time. And um, so she ran to grab the police officer and um, Phillips was arrested later that day at his school and was held in a maximum security as he made his first court appearance. It was determined that Clifton's cause of death was due to stabbing and clubbing with a baseball bat. Phillips stated that the events happened when he was at home alone and Maddie came to his house asking for him to come out and play. Well, they were going to go they were going to play baseball and Phillips agreed even though he was not allowed to have friends over while his parents were not home. As the two were playing ball, Maddie threw the ball at him and he hit it, which caused the ball to strike Maddie's eye. Which is an accident that happens. Right. I mean, um, when I was growing up, that's why I had this little lump on my nose is because I'm scared shitless of a softball because I tried stopping it with my face about three times. I only did it once. Yeah. I'm a little more hard-headed, I reckon. Yeah, I don't like sports. So, so her eye had began to bleed. She started to cry and scream. Knowing that his father would be home soon, Phillips panicked, fearing his father's reaction when he got home, so he decided to drag Maddie into the house, took her to his room, where he proceeded to strangle her with a phone cord for approximately 15 minutes. So obviously he wasn't totally cutting off her air supply. Obviously not. This was a slow, painful situation. Right. Soon after, he hit her again with the baseball bat and stuffed her under the base of his waterbed. When Josh's father returned home, he, he went to interact with him for a while and returned to his room. When he discovered that Maddie was still alive, moaning under the bed, he removed the mattress, which I don't, I don't see how that's possible unless they had taken the waterbed out, but they thought it was leaking, so that's not the case. But you can't just remove the mattress. But he stabbed her 11 times, killing her. Maybe he had, like, drawers or something. He'd have to. He pulled out. Phillips' trial was held in Polk County, Florida, where he was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He's not eligible for the death penalty sentence since he was under six, under the age of 16 and he committed when he committed the murder. While the autopsy did not reveal any sexual assault, Maddie's body was found naked from the waist down and Phillips stated that her clothes came off while he was dragging her body into the room. Which kind of makes sense. I mean, if he was dragging her by the top Arms, part. Right. The murder appears to have been motivated by Phillips' fear of his abusive and alcoholic father who would have been very angry if he had found Maddie in their house. Phillips stated on the TV program 
too young to kill 15 shocking crimes, that if he could take it back, he would, subsequently breaking down in tears. So we go back again to these kids that have stuff happen to them that causes them to do these terrible things. Like, it it turns them into these people. Right. Right. Their environment. I mean, and being scared, you know, Mm -hmm. that does a lot to you. I mean... I mean, he thought he was going to get beat. Right. So he was trying to do away with the problem to prevent his... Like, for his own safety. Right. And, you know, that was just a bad situation altogether. But first up, once again, how are you going to have the body for a week in your room? The smell had to be, I mean, awful. I mean, some teenage boys don't smell that great either, so. But still. (laughs) Maybe he had really stinky shoes and... Mm -mm. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing he just kept his room closed up and they just didn't really notice it. Right. Probably so. So, all right. I guess I'll I'll kick off one of these here. Um, if I can read my handwriting on this one. Oh, you sound like me now. <laughs> so, the first one I'm going to talk about is 13-year-old Eric Smith. Um, and he is from Steuben County, New York. Um... Eric, his his mom was named Tammy, and she took a drug called Tridione during her pregnancy. Okay. It was an epilepsy medication, and it was known to cause deformities in kids. Um, his father was Randy Hevnor, and he denied paternity of Eric, but was proven later to be his biological father by a DNA test. Um, and Hevner allowed Eric's sister to visit, but not him. So we've already got, we're setting the stage for some, some issues going on with Eric. Um, Tammy remarried Ted Smith, who adopted Eric. And Ted was very accepting of the kids, but also very abusive. He would beat and kick Eric, and his mom didn't do anything to intervene. So we have got three story, two stories told, one story going, and there's been a reoccurring theme in every one of them. Abused kids. Yep. Yeah. Don't abuse your kids. Yeah. So um, it was also revealed later that Hevner sexually abused Eric's sister. And years later, Eric claimed that he was molested, but nobody in the family could corroborate that story. So, when Eric was younger, he tortured, killed, and disemboweled animals, which is another running theme for people who end up killing later on. Serial right. killer trademark. Mm-hmm. Um, so, to go back to this drug that his mom took while she was pregnant, and when I say drug that she took, it was a prescribed medication she took for a reason. It, she wasn't just taking drugs, but um, Eric had bright red hair. He had large, low-set ears and poor vision, so he had to wear thick glasses. He had developmental delays as well, and by the age of 13, he was only in the fifth grade. So we got this big boy with these big, low ears and Coke bottle glasses, and he's a couple grades behind. So as you can imagine, he was bullied at school. I mean, you said he was 13 and in the 
the fifth, fifth grade. Fifth grade? Yeah. Yeah, so that put him almost like two grades behind. Two or three, yeah. Um, one of Eric's classmates had died in a car accident a few years earlier. So Eric fully understood the concept of death at this point. Like, it was explained to him. Did you hear that? Hear what? I guess you did. I thought I heard somebody talking. Yeah, I don't know. Weird. Okay, go ahead. Okay. So, one of Eric's classmates died in a car accident a few years earlier. His parents explained the concept of death to him. He fully understood it. Um, But he still would call the boy's family several times and ask to speak to the boy. And people think now that he did it because it, it... Gave him a thrill to upset the family to call and ask for the, their dead kid. That's just a dick move. Yeah. So on August 2nd, 1993, four-year-old Derek Joseph Roby was pestering his mom to let him walk to summer camp two blocks away by himself. She was preoccupied by his fussy infant brother who was teething and went ahead and gave in. What year was this? I don't know. Who in the hell lets their four-year-old child walk anywhere by themselves? Mrs. Roby, apparently. Um, so, Eric was 13, and he was riding his bike to the same summer camp. So, Eric asked Derek if he wanted to take a shortcut through the woods. But Derek, obviously, had had the stranger danger talk, and he said he wasn't supposed to go anywhere with strangers. But Eric persisted. He continued on and on. So Derek goes with him. Once they get into the woods, Eric gets behind Derek and puts him in a chokehold. I guess like a like a wrestling move kind of chokehold. Yeah. Eric lowered Derek to the ground when he thought he had killed him. But as you probably know, like you pass out before you die. Right. So he quit struggling. Eric lays him on the ground, and then he gasps for air. Right. So Eric gets on top of him and strangles him that way. He also opened up Derek's lunchbox and grabbed his sandwich out and shoved it in his mouth, I guess, to try to restrict the airflow even more, make it easier, Hmm. I guess. Crazy. So then Eric finds a rock and beats Derek in the head with it. And then picks up two larger rocks and stands over Derek and drops the rocks onto him, breaking his sternum. Mm. And this is this is the graphic part. This is part of the reason for my warning earlier in the episode. Eric then removed Derek's pants and underwear, turned him over, and inserted a branch into his rectum. So uh, hopefully he's dead by then. But my my thing is why? I have no idea. Um, when Derek's mother learned he hadn't been at camp that day, she called the police and a search party of 300 people formed to go look for him, including Eric and his father. Oh my God. Derek's body was found four hours later. Um, that actually didn't let the family see the body because of the situation that it was in with the branch. He left the stick in there. Yeah, he stuck it up in there and left. That's crazy. Um, when police were interviewing Eric, because I think they just interviewed all the neighborhood kids to see 
if they had seen anything. Uh, Eric mentioned the sexual mutilation, and that hadn't been released to the public. Oh, no. He just incriminated himself. He, he did. He was so proud of his work. I guess so. I guess he was like, man, I can't believe they stuck that stick up his butt, you know, and nobody knew about it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I do know what year we're talking about. We're talking about the 1990s. Holy shit. Yeah. Not long ago. Um, but in, in 1990, <laughs> you still don't let your four-year-old child go fucking anywhere. No, not walking by the, not even two blocks away to summer camp. I wouldn't even let my kid go to the damn mailbox at four-year-old. No, but... By themselves. Yeah. This mama did, and that's why we don't, I guess, because things like this happen. So, of course, you know, there was a hearing. Um, The psychiatrist examined Eric, and he was diagnosed with intermittent explosive disorder, which causes people to erupt with violence unexpectedly. Um, He was found guilty of second-degree murder in 1994 and was sentenced to nine years to life in prison. Why was there even a nine years put in front of that? I guess because of him only being, what, 13 when he did this, I guess. Nine years would put him at 21, 22. So he's going to serve nine years in a juvenile facility and then go to the big house? Well, I guess it gave them the option, depending on his behavior in the juvenile, if they were going to release him or not. But I got good news there. Okay. Um, so Eric was kept in a juvenile facility until 2001 and then was transferred to a state prison. Um, he went in front of the parole board in 2014 and said, talking about Derek, he didn't deserve anything that I did to him. No one deserved that kind of violence. When I, What I did to him was brutal. I took my anger and frustration and rage out on him, and he did not deserve that. Eric explained to the parole board those emotions were directed at his father, sister, and the bullies at school. But he's been denied parole ten times since he first became eligible in August 2002. Wow. He has a parole hearing every two years, and his next hearing is in October 2021. So he's still in there. Um, so obviously the parole board listens to this story and isn't buying into his I'm so sorry gig. Right. Um, the thing about intermittent explosive disorder is there's really not any treatment for it other than to just learn to control your anger. There's no pill that makes it better. Um, it's, I always kind of think of it as like, the Incredible Hulk has intermittent explosive disorder. I, I guess. See, a lot of these disorders, I just, I think we just make up shit so we can say that's what they have. Yeah, and put a label on it, but really, I mean, th- like I said, there's not a whole lot you can do for it, so. Right. Okay, so my next one is Brenda Spencer. Brenda Spencer lived in San Carlos neighborhood of San Diego, California, in a house across the street from Grover Cleveland Elementary School. San Diego unified the school districts, and at age 16, she was 5'2". You know, 
I really should proofread some of this because that had nothing to do with anything. It was just there. the school district. Yeah. It, they didn't unify the school district. It was just the school yeah. district name. That was stuff I could have just went without saying. At age 16, she was five foot two, unusually thin, and had bright red hair. And classmates described her as pretty crummy looking. <laughs> That's rude as hell. I mean, damn. I mean, I'm just kind of thinking, like, at 16, your oldest was 5'2 and thin and had bright red hair, and she's a cute little girl. Yeah. And this was in, I'm assuming, close to 1979. So, acquaintances later said Spencer expressed a negative attitude towards police and had talked about shooting one. Teachers described her as an introvert, and sometimes they would inquire if she was awake. Later, during tests while she was in custody, it was discovered that Spencer had an injury to the temporal lobe of her brain attributed to an accident on her bike. Spencer excelled in photography, winning first prize in the Human Society competition. Humane. Humane. (laughs) Humane. I'm using them $10, $15 words, not, not this shit. <laughs> After her parents separated, she lived with her father, Wallace Spencer, in a vir- in virtual poverty. She slept, they slept on a single mattress in the living room floor, and poli- police later found half-empty bottles of alcohol throughout the house. In 2001, she accused her father of having drunkenly subjected her to beatings and sexual assault. He said the allegations were not true, and Spencer said that she had self-identified herself as having been gay from birth. So we've got another kid here that's been abused as a child. Right. All right, so we're getting to the meat and potatoes of this here in a second. In 1978, staff at the facility for problem pupils, which Spencer had been referred to due to truancy, informed her parents that she was suicidal. That summer, Spencer was arrested for shooting out the windows in the Cleveland Elementary School with a BB gun and burglary. In December, a a psychiatric evaluation arranged by her probation officer recommended Spencer to be admitted to a mental hospital due to her depression depressed state and her father refused to give permission probably didn't want her talking about what had happened to her in therapy right but get this you ready now we've already got trouble with her shooting the windows out with a BB gun and her being suicidal okay for Christmas in 1978 he gave her a Ruger 1022 semi-automatic 22 caliber rifle with a scope and 500 rounds of ammunition. All right then. Spencer later said, "I asked for a radio and he bought me a gun." When when asked why he might have done that, she answered, "I felt like he wanted me to kill myself." Well, if she killed herself, then she couldn't tell on him for what he did to her. So, on Monday morning, January 29th, 1979, Spencer began shooting from her home at children 
that were waiting outside the Cleveland Elementary School for Principal Burton. What is that one? White rag. Rag to open up the gates. She injured eight children. Burton Rag was killed while trying to help the children, and custodian Mike Scar Suture Suture Suchar was killed while trying to pull Wag Rag to safety. A police officer responded to the call for assistance during the incident and was shot in the neck as he arrived. After firing 30 rounds of ammunition, Spencer barricaded herself inside her home for nearly seven hours. While there, she had a telephone conversation with a journalist who reported that she said, This is the best excuse I've ever heard. I don't like Mondays. Justified. Next. (laughs) So... She later also spoke with a police negotiator telling them that she shot, she had made shots, but she had shots made easy targets. I see that don't make sense to me either. That, I don't think that's right. Yeah. Anywho, Spencer had been repeatedly reminded of these statements at the parole hearing and ultimately she surrendered. The police, off, the police officer found beer and whiskey bottles cluttered at the house and said Spencer did not have did not appear to be intoxicated at the time of arrest. So it's probably all her dad's empty bottles. Yeah. She was, he gives a suicidal kid who's already been in trouble for shooting out windows a gun instead of a radio for Christmas, and they live across from a shooting gallery that is an elementary school. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. You know, she'd already been in trouble shooting out the windows of said, um, said elementary school. So she was just practicing. Yeah. Getting her sights lined up right. Yeah, getting it dialed in. So, um, Spencer was trialed as an adult, as an adult and pled guilty to two counts of murder and assault with a deadly weapon. She was sentenced to prison for 25 years to life. Spencer was diagnosed as an epileptic, and she receives medication to treat epilepsy and depression while at the California Institution for Women in Chino, California. Indeterminate sentence. In 1993, Spencer became eligible for hearings to consider suitability for parole. She has been unsuccessful at four board parole hearings. In practice, very few of those convicted of any murder obtained parole in California before 2011. 2011 must be when the jails started getting overcrowded. Yeah. So, um, I actually watched a video with her, and she claims that she was strung out on LSD. Oh, nice. And she says at that time, they couldn't test for LSD. They may not have been able to. And she also says that there were two toxicology reports, one saying that she was not drunk and one saying she was drunk. Hmm. So, not sure how that played out. But, okay, so telling on myself, I've, I've been pretty drunk in my day. Mm, me too. Um... Never to the point where I would 
think it's a good idea to shoot kids in an elementary school. But you've never been beat? No. You've never lived in shit? No. You've never been in a frame of mind that she was in? So That's you, true. You don't know how the alcohol affected her. Right. I, I mean, think that I think the trauma had a lot more to do with it than any alcohol or drugs. I mean, let's get me past my drunken spot and see how we like it. Let's not. Okay, see? <laughs> see, the, the things that, that in your past that, that alcohol tends to bring to the forefront, and sometimes you just have to deal with it how you deal with it. Yeah. But, oddly enough, there, there was a band called Bob Geldof and the Boomtown Rats had a major hit inspired by these events. And the name of the song was I Don't Like Mondays. It spent four weeks at in the UK's number one spot and was also very popular in the States. I'm wondering and I'm, I'm feeling kind of bad. Like, is all of our I Don't Do Mondays stuff... Does it all go back to this? Was there possibly posters and Garfield and all that? Not like in Mondays before this happened. Uh, I don't know, but it says it right there. I don't like Mondays. I mean, I don't like mornings, but I don't get to kill people every morning. No. Yet. Well, <laughs> y'all heard it here, folks. <laughs> it's not premeditated. Uh-uh. Well, that, was, that was strange that that was her reason for going off on people was that it was Monday. Mm-hmm. kind of feel like that would be something, if I ever totally lose it, it's going to be something trivial like that, though, too. Right. It's going to be like, well, the garbage truck was too loud this week. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to be the straw that pushes me over the edge. That's so justifiable. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I'm up again. Yeah, unless you want me to knock out this um, this other one I got. Well, whichever one you want to do. How do you want to do it? Um, you look like you're pulling stuff up. Well, no. I have one article that is like a mile and a half long. Mm-hmm. And I have one article that's not quite so long that just kind of gives the bare minimum of information. So you're going to go with that, maybe? Well... I don't know. Do your story, then I'll do this one. Okay. All right, so, I, oddly enough, even though we didn't plan out our order, I also am now going to be talking about a girl. So, I'm talking about Mary Bell. And we're looking at the 1960s. Um, Mary was born to Betty, and Betty was a 16-year-old prostitute. So we're already setting the stage for a great life. Right. Betty allegedly told the doctor when she had Mary to take that thing away from me when she saw the baby. Um, Betty was away from home often, and when she was home, she was physically and mentally abusive to Mary. There it is again. There it is again. Mary's aunt actually witnessed Betty try to give Mary away to a woman who had been unsuccessful in adopting, which may have been the best thing for her. Right. But the aunt went and got Mary back. 
gave back to Betty. Mm-mm-mm. Mary suffered from strange, air quote here, accidents as a child. Like getting pushed down some stairs? Uh, she fell from a window. What? No way. And she accidentally overdosed on sleeping pills. Accidentally? Yeah, because all kids... Have access to sleeping pills? Yeah, and accidentally take a bunch. Huh. Well, you know, I'm a grown-ass man, and I accidentally took some hydrocodone. No, codeine. Codeine. One time, and... Yeah. I didn't know it was related to morphine, and it would make you hallucinate. Yeah, that was a fun night. Just so y'all know, I'm allergic to morphine, and codeine turns to morphine in your system, and that night... Apparently, I was hallucinating pretty good. and um, That's why you don't share medication, folks. And I uh, may have chased a man that was chasing my cats through the house the first time. The second time, I may or may not have got the pistol out and was going to shoot said man that was chasing my cats through the house, but I never could find him, so I went back to bed. Yeah, so only take medicine your doctor prescribes for you. <laughs> And not cough medicine that you're just trying to help someone feel better and get a good night's sleep with. Just so y'all know, I was reluctant, but she forced me to. I did not force you. I wasn't here. I was actually pretty sick. I was bad off. Yeah, and <laughs> you was just trying to make it through till morning. And yeah. That may have been when you had strep and flu. I don't remember. Yeah, me neither. So, okay, so all these accidents <laughs> that, that Mary has. Let's get back and get this train back on the rails. Tangent. Um... <laughs> Mary later reported that her mother started prostituting her out when she was four years old, but there's no evidence of this other than Mary's statements. Um, when Mary was five years old, she saw her friend get run over and killed by a bus. Wow. So we're just stacking trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma. Um, on May 11th, 1968... When Mary was 10 years old, she was playing with a three-year-old boy when he was badly injured after falling from on top of an air raid shelter. His parents thought it was an accident. The next day, three mothers went to the police saying Mary had tried to choke their daughters. Mary was interviewed, got a stern lecture from the police but didn't face any charges at that point. Huh. So like, hey, you know, don't play so rough, kid. That kind of thing. Right. So on May 25th, 1968, the day before her 11th birthday, Mary Bell strangled four-year-old Martin Brown to death in an abandoned house in Scottswood, England. She left and returned with her friend, Norma Bell, Happens to be same last name. They're not related. Hmm. They spell it different? Nope. That's Um, odd. But when they got back, they saw that two local boys had been playing in the house and had already found the body. So, other than a small amount of blood and saliva on Martin's face, there were no obvious signs of violence. And there was an empty bottle of painkillers on the floor near the body. So the police assumed that Martin swallowed the pills and his death was ruled an accident. 
I guess they didn't actually do an autopsy because they would have found that there wasn't a whole bunch of pills in his system. I started to say you should have t- checked the stomach contents or maybe a toxicology report or something. some blood work. Yeah, I guess they didn't do any of that. I mean, I'm not a rocket scientist, and obviously y'all can tell that by the way I read. <laughs> um, but come on now. That's good. That's just good police work. Well, I mean, I guess back in the late 60s, good police work was... Oh, look, that's probably what did it. I'm pretty sure that, you know, even if it's something as simple as a heart attack, they still do blood work and all that good stuff to find out. I mean... Well, this was in England, too, so... Oh, okay. Maybe different rules. Maybe so. I don't know. The Maybe Bobbies, the family had to request it. The Bobbies didn't have to do stuff like that. Yeah, I guess not. Um... So, you remember when I was talking about Eric and him calling the little boy's family just to mess with them after he knew they were dead? Right. So, Mary went to Martin's parents' house within a few days of him dying and asked to see him. Oh. His mother tried to gently explain, you know, like, oh, I'm sorry, didn't you hear? He passed away. And Mary said, yeah, I already knew that. I wanted to see his body in the coffin. What? Yeah. Wow. That's almost as bad as this chick I'm fixing to tell y'all about here in a minute. So, um, yeah, Mary got the door slammed in her face. Rightfully so. So, Mary and Norma, they broke into a nursery school and vandalized it with notes, taking credit for Martin's death and promising to kill again. But the police thought it was just a morbid joke. Didn't they go back and carve an M on his chest? I'm getting there. Hang oh, on. I'm so sorry. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> so on July 31st, so we're talking just a couple months later, Mary and Norma killed three-year-old Brian Howe by strangulation. Okay. Mary mutilated the body with scissors, scratching his thighs. And butchering his penis. And I think she basically almost like cut it off. Wow. Um, the coroner's report, so obviously they did some checking into this one. Um, the coroner's report revealed that after Brian's blood cooled, new marks appeared on his chest. Someone had used a razor blade to scratch the letter M into his torso. And this was like the next day after he was dead, wasn't it? It, it was, well, it was post-mortem, yeah, I guess, yeah. What I read said that she had went, she, Mary, by herself, had went back mm-hmm. to the body. Yeah, they, they mutilated it, like, immediately after, but right. she went back later and was like, I'm going to put this M mm-hmm. on him, too. Um, also, the coroner said that the lack of force used in the attack suggested that the killer may have been a child. Okay. So, police started interviewing local children, hoping someone had seen something, and I guess also hoping they're going to look into something since the force says that it's probably a kid. Norma and Mary both were acting really strange during this time. Norma was really excited, and Mary was evasive. So, Uh. I think, like, Norma's excitement is probably like that nervous energy, you know, kind of twitchy and... Um, the day that Brian was buried, Mary was seen outside his house, 
and she laughed and rubbed her hands together when she saw his coffin. Wow. So she got some issues. Mary was questioned by the police a second time. Maybe because she's acting kind of strange. Um, Mary made up a story about seeing an eight-year-old boy hit Brian the day that he died and that the boy had been carrying a pair of broken scissors. Once again, we got a kid giving too many details. Writing stuff that she should not know. Yep, the police hadn't released the details about the mutilation of the body. So only the police and the killer knew that scissors or some kind of cutting used. utensil yeah. was used. Wow. Um, How old was Mary again? She was, um, at this point, she was 11. Okay. The first one was the day before she turned 11, I think. And okay. now she's 11 years old. So between 10 and 11, she's done, wow. Yeah, she's That's... killed two three-year-olds. Or a four-year-old and a three-year-old. Um, Norma and Mary both broke down under further questioning. How the hell are these people not watching their kids better? I don't know. I mean, who lets a three-year-old and a four-year-old just go out, all willy-nilly? Out to play different times i mean i can man i mean back when our parents were growing up kids as soon as they were old enough would get on their bike and leave when the sun came up and come back when it got dark for dinner yeah but hell i was nine ten years old this was in 68 i was not far well yeah i guess you weren't thought of yet you was 10 years from thought of yeah still hanging out with my daddy's son yeah so at the trial, the jury agreed that Mary had committed the murders, mm-hmm. but she was found guilty of manslaughter instead of murder. And that is because the court psychiatrist convinced the jury that Mary showed cla- classic symptoms of psychopathy. Which to me, if you're a psychopath, that's more reason to give you a harsher judgment than a lesser judgment. Um, but can you help it if you're a psychopath? Well, and that's what they said, that she could not be held fully responsible for her actions. Yeah, see. That's such a slippery slope. Because if you can't be held responsible for your actions and you let them out, they're going to do it again because right. they can't control themselves. So that means they should no chance of ever getting out. Right. Well, that's not what happened here. What? <laughs> Um, Norma (laughs) was considered an unwilling accomplice and was acquitted. So she walked free. She walked free. Nothing happened to her. But did she actually kill them? It didn't really say. She was with, she didn't the first one. She was just with her. She, in the second one, she was with her. I don't know if she participated in it or not, but she was there when it happened. I think she may have been slightly bullied into going with her for these excursions. If you knew that your friend was killing people, wouldn't you be kind of afraid that she'd kill you if you didn't go or if you said something? Um, are you asking me, like, for real? Because chances are, if, my, if I know my buddy's knocking folks off, I might help him. Well, <laughs> that's because you're insane. Well, so be it. <laughs> so, um, Mary's sentence, remember this is in England, was at Her Majesty's Pleasure. Which means until the powers that be feel it's appropriate to let her out. Uh, so one person can say, hey, you know what? I feel you learned your lesson. Just go on. Yeah. So 
This happened, the murders happened in 1968. Um, Mary was released in 1980. Holy shit. Under strict probation. But here's the kicker. She was given a new identity to give her a chance at a new life and protect her from the tabloids. And I think that was to protect her children too, wouldn't it? Well, at that point it was just her. Um, she had a daughter in 1984. Her daughter was born on May 25th, 1984. 16 years to the day that she killed Martin. Wow. Um, her daughter was unaware of her crimes until she was 14 years old and a tabloid reporter happened upon Mary and did a story about it. Uh. So her daughter had no idea that her mom was a killer of innocent children. That's crazy. Until she was 14. So Mary is now in protective custody at a secret location. I guess that's like witness protection. And she and her daughter remain anonymous and protected under a court order. In 2009, the court order was updated because Mary became a grandmother. Okay, but so, but from that point on, she was she walked the straight and narrow and was a, a I'm going to say a productive citizen. I, I guess so. Um, she wouldn't get in trouble. Yeah, or she would have been locked back up. Or she was just getting better at it. Yeah, she got good at hiding it. <laughs> um, but I would think witness protection, you'd probably be under surveillance of some kind for your protection, so... Right. Now, I did read, um, obviously, um, one of the little boys, I don't remember if it was Martin or if it was Brian, but his mom was interviewed when Mary became a grandmother, and she was rightfully bitter um, that... But, you know, said that any child is a blessing. She wasn't cursing the the grandbaby but was like I hope that every time Mary looks at that baby she realizes that I won't get to see my son's grandbabies you know understandable and you know Mary may do that yep so my next story is a little little odd so when most teenagers have a Friday off school they sleep in maybe get together with some friends bum around the house in some PJs all day. But when 15-year-old Alyssa Bustamante of Missouri had a Friday off from school, she spent that day digging two holes in the ground to be used as graves. Then she waited and Alyssa went for for the life. Then she waited and then went on with life as usual. She went to school. She hung out friends and all while just waiting for the perfect opportunity to murder the opportunity came just four days later on october 21st 2009 in the evening when her neighbor nine-year-old elizabeth olton you're looking at me weird Mm. am i reading too good you're doing a good job keep going wow look at me (laughs) (laughs) elizabeth olton was walking home from her friend's house Elizabeth was the last seen at 6.15 when she left her friend's house to go home. Her her house was only a few houses down and Elizabeth would never be seen alive again. 
When she hadn't returned home, the family frantically began looking for her and called the police and reported her missing. Around 7-ish. Her family, knowing that she was afraid of the dark and would have and would not have wandered off alone, grew increasingly worried. They knew that Elizabeth wouldn't stay out after dark. That was very repetitive. So, let's see. Alyssa, seeing that she had had, she finally had the opportunity to kill, she took it. She grabbed Elizabeth Olden, beat her, strangled her, and finally stabbed her and slit her throat. She then dumped the body into one of the graves that she had dug a week before. And this was in the nearby woods. Police searched vigorously for the little girl, including the area where her body would eventually be found. But they found no trace of her. They pinged Elizabeth's cell phone, and though it showed its location as being in the woods where her body lay, the police searched the area without locating her. And her cell phone at the end... Wait a second. Oh, they didn't find her or her cell phone. Well, that's because they weren't looking under the dirt. In the end, after a letter led police to Alyssa, she confessed. It was Alyssa herself who led police to the grave and the body of the brutally slain girl. Now, the why in this case is really simple, yet really complicated. So... The simple explanation given by Alyssa herself was she wanted to know what it felt like to kill someone. Simple enough. Psychologically, implications of that statement are obvious. Normal, mentally stable people, even, even, even if they ever wondered that question to themselves, do not go and actually commit a murder in order to find out. When made, what made Alyssa take? That's not word of breath. That's not your fault. Okay, so I'm just going to omit that. Um, what made Alyssa decide to seek to satisfy her curiosity made that answer a little more complicated. As usual, it was the case of hindsight which is always 2020. There were clues and warning signs that someone might not write, that something was not right with Alyssa. She had shown signs of psychological problems in the past. She had attempted suicide numerous times, and she was on medication for depression. And I will say some medications for depression, while they help the person not feel depressed, they also make them apathetic like they they don't feel period right so that would take away a little of the the fear and the not wanting to hurt someone right she had been given both inpatient and outpatient psychiatric care after her last suicide attempt she was a cutter someone who generally deals with the emotions emotional pain by cutting and inflicting physical pain on themselves or self-mutilating. Her best friend, when interviewed, claims Alyssa had once told her 
that she wondered what it would be like to kill someone. She had many online accounts, but it was it was but it was noted on her YouTube account in particular that she listed her hobbies as killing people and cutting. Hmm. Her YouTube account also had what police considered some disturbing home movies, including one where she urges her brother to touch an electric cattle fence after doing so herself. Hey, I know a guy who did that. <laughs> I told him not to. Yeah, that's for another day. <laughs> Be- before the clip involving her brother, Alyssa writes, this is where it gets good. This is where my brother gets hurt. In addition, neither of Alyssa's parents were around, and Alyssa was in the care of her grandparents. She was born to a teenage mother who was who had a criminal record for petty crimes, and drug possession, and DUI. Alyssa's father was in prison serving 10-year sentence for assault. She was described as a violent, depressed, and angry None of these things are an excuse for the murder, but we as society have to question whether something should have been done for Alyssa before this happened. If someone had stepped in, could we have prevented this vicious murder from occurring? And, you know, I'll go ahead and put this out there. See something, say something. Yeah, but... I think we're all guilty of, like, as a society, we're kind of numb to some of these kind of statements. I mean, I know I myself at work threatened to jump off the building about eight times a day and say, yeah, yeah, you but, know, like. But I'm, when somebody's like posting out there, my hobbies, killing people, that's, 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 that's a, a way bigger red flag. Yeah. yeah I mean,. I mean, come on, no. I, I I see what you're saying. I'm just saying, though, like, if if not taken in the context of knowing that she killed someone. See, and it's it's different, like, what are your hobbies? What are your hobbies? Whooping people's asses. Okay, zap, scroll on by, no big deal. They a brawler, they like to fight. Nope, whatever. But when it specifically says, I like killing people. But then you've got this little teenage girl, and everyone's probably thinking, oh, yeah, okay, she's not killing anybody. She's just trying to be cool. Yeah, but not even being, those words don't make you cool, period. I agree. I'm just, I'm trying to be devil's advocate a little bit and and put some perspective on it, too, that people don't always take words at face value. Yeah, well, certain words should. It should. And in any case, it's just like, you know, if I would rather that get reported, the cops go out, see that it is just some stupid little girl who's trying to get some attention and there's no harm, no foul. Right. And then they we've ate up 15 minutes of the cops' time or an hour or whatever, and we move on about our life, and that's a good situation versus not doing a damn thing, and this little psycho chick goes off and kills somebody. But if the police had gone out there and seen her and said, hey, why did your YouTube say you like killing people? Oh, it's just a joke. I thought it was funny. And then they lecture her. They tell her to change it, and she does, and they go away, and then she still goes and kills people. 
Well, I mean, I mean, surely after the, uh, you know, after you talk to her, you, you'll get a feel for her. I guess. Just saying. Sometimes so, it takes more than one red flag, though. Well, so it was a big one right there. So, um, let me find where I was. I'm so sorry for losing my spot again. The police have speculated that the reason Alyssa had dug not one but two graves was was because she had planned to murder her two younger brothers, but had instead grabbed the opportunity to kill Elizabeth when it presented itself. They feel that the YouTube video backups backs up this, this theory. She clearly took delight in inflicting pain on her brothers. Now, see, I think depends on how ba- how what kind of pain they're in reference to. Yeah, and if there was more than one video, right? Like I feel like if it was just the one video, that's kind of like if you take a baseball bat to the nuts and I post it on YouTube and I'm like, hey everyone, look, this is where he gets it, you know. And is this a Varsity Blues reference? I was thinking more like America's Funniest Home Videos. No, it should be called America's Funniest Shots, Shots to, to the, the nuts. nuts. Yeah. Okay, Tweeter. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, if if I posted one video like that, then right. it's like, okay, well, they just thought that was funny because it happened that one time. But, but if there's 19 videos of you getting hurt in different ways and right. I'm making fun of each one. That's a little different. That's different. So, um, let's see. Yeah, I, that's pretty much where they shut it down right there. Be interesting to see too. I mean, was there? Wait a second, Alyssa. Let's see, in corroboration by Alyssa of the allegations, the questions of why there were two graves dug is an interesting one. That she may, we may never know the answer. Did Alyssa have a different target in mind for her crimes? Would she kill again if she had not been caught the first time? So I I would be interested to know if, like, what her relationship was like with her brothers. Did she, I mean, did she have a reason to be jealous of them? Did they get more attention from someone? Did they get treated differently because they were boys? That kind of stuff. Because then I might be able to judge a little better on the, she was digging graves for her brothers and wanted them dead. Right. Instead of just some random, I want to kill someone. I think if you want your brothers dead, you pretty much focus in on them. Yeah, not just an opportunistic thing. You would have lured them out there. You would have done them because that was your goal. Not she. She was just wanting to do the deed. Period. She didn't care who. She could have made an opportunity to get her brothers out there. Right. Okay. We're running on like an hour and sixteen minutes. But we gotta recut out the whole first part right you messed it up so so but it was only like a minute or 30 (laughs) so this next one i I mean this is horrible but i'm gonna say kudos to this cat for standing up for himself okay so this is cody posey or the stories about cody posey so by all accounts paul posey was a mean son of a bitch he lived and worked in Chavez Canyon Ranch in Hondo, Mexico with his family. He had he and his second wife, Tyrone. His wife's name was Tyrone? Yeah, and my, I'm 
It, does that not say his wife, Tyrone? It does. All right. Maybe it's like Tyrone or something. Well, we're going to call her Tyrone. Tyrone. So he and his second wife, Tyrone, abused Cody, Paul's 14-year-old son, Tyrone's stepson, psychologically and physically every day. Meanwhile, Cody's stepsister, 13-year-old Marlia, was encouraged to tattle on him and rewarded whenever he got in trouble. Cody was pushed too far when he was summoned to Paul and Tyrone's bedroom where Tyrone was waiting for him naked on the bed. They wanted him to have sex with Tyrone while Paul watched. That's just sick. Yeah, that, ugh. Cody refused and when and was burned with welding irons for his disobedience. The next day, July 5th, 2004, when Cody was being berated and hit again, something inside him snapped. He fetched a shotgun and walked up behind Tyrone as she sat on the couch and he shot he shot two in the back of the head. Paul and Marina were blasted to death as they walked in the house and to see what was happening. Cody was sorry. Cody then used a backhoe to bury the bodies in a big pile of manure where he felt they thought they belonged. Well, it, at least in this situation, he is killing the people. Who were responsible for turning him into this. Cody eventually confessed, and many witnesses corroborated his story of abuse. He was sentenced to juvenile until he was 21 when he walked out a free man. Yeah, see, and I can get behind that because in in that situation, they would be working with him, giving him counseling and rehabilitating him. But that, to me, is justified. Right. I mean, that's, because that's killing that's self-defense yeah i mean because your mind is a horrible place to be if it is everywhere right and you know when you don't when you can't do anything correctly and it's constantly being thrown at you from every direction every even if it's the parental figures above you versus the smaller sibling underneath you you're just hung out in the middle and everybody's against you and Man, that that was a messed up situation, but but all these all these other kids that we talked about, they were so much younger than the people that were abusing them. Right, they couldn't. They they didn't stand a chance, so they were seeking out people that were weaker and right to try to establish that control. Right. So, so I I guess our our moral of our stories for today is you know be nice to your kids. Yeah, and (laughs) I mean if. If you know about child abuse going on, be the one that snitches. Yeah, I mean, honestly, if, like I said, if you see something, say something. Find somebody, and you can do this stuff anonymously. Yeah, you can call your local Children's Protective Services and not give a name. You could, or you could even simply call the police station. You ain't got to dial 911, but, you know, the police station to get you where you need to be. Yeah, so, I mean, you can get a Google Voice number on your phone. It's not even your phone number. Right. So, I guess that's going to wrap this show up of our killer kids. And I appreciate y'all hanging out with us and watching me stumble through some of this stuff. And I hope y'all enjoyed it. Um, 
be sure to check out House of Curses. Yeah. Um, those nice fellas let us play their music at the beginning and end of all of our shows and, you know, let me headbang and make an idiot out of myself over here for nobody but Dwayne. Um, of course, come see us on Facebook and Instagram. Yep. Um, you can find us at WTF Was That Pod. Uh, we'd love to get some conversation going over there right now it's just us kind of posting when there's new episodes honestly we would love to get anything give us some it doesn't matter if it's good (laughs) if it's bad we we just you know some interaction with with our group or our fans or our people that listen we don't matter it doesn't matter just uh do you think we're going too in detail do you not think we're giving enough detail do you want spookier stuff you know something just something you know, you know, hey, you guys are kind of stupid. You know, yeah. whatever. <laughs> um, you know what? You can write a bad review if you want. Just give me five stars. Yeah. I, <laughs> I like the way you talk. You know, we'll take that. And spell it just like that. <laughs> talk. T-A-W-K-L-K. Talk. Talk. <laughs> um, of course, we have an email, and I prefer if you put the bad stuff in the email, because I don't see that unless Dwayne shows it to me. Um, that's WTFWTPodcast at gmail.com. There's also a button on our Facebook page that you can click if you don't want to write that down and remember it. Um, keep downloading. Keep listening. Tell a friend. Yep. I um, mean, just be, you know, if you like what we're doing, tell at least one person. Yep. Get them to listen to us and... Maybe they'll tell somebody else so we can build our fan base. I've seen several people right now with the quarantine posting on Facebook. Anybody got any good podcasts? Because everybody's listening up and catching up on all of their ones that they currently listen to. So right. Throw our name out there. I mean, we may not be everybody's cup of tea, but we're probably one person's cup of At tea. At least one more. I mean, we've held your attention for an hour and 23 minutes. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> I guess hit the button. All right. Guys, y'all have a good night.